Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. I used this on and off for maybe two years before I met Jamie. Not had much success with it, to be honest, but I had been using it for a while. This is Eddie Butler. He met his boyfriend, Jamie, on Tinder. I don't remember swiping right on Jamie, to be honest, but it was more after we both did match and we got a chatting that I really started to realise that this is someone that I liked. It was probably maybe a week and a half or two weeks before we first met up. We lived maybe an hour and a half away from each other, so it wasn't ideal. So we tended to meet when Jamie was leaving home and heading to college and he was traveling fairly close by where I lived. And it kind of took off from there. Then we, we would meet maybe once, twice a week, and then it became a bit more frequent. Luckily for Eddie, Jamie was persistent. Maybe when conversations might die away, as tends to happen sometimes online, Jamie would always make a point of coming back to it and really pushing. There was no there was no getting away from him, really. If I wasn't in the mood for meeting him, if I came up with an excuse or something, he would always, well, I'll come to you uh, and things like that, which scared me kind of at first, to be honest. But as we got to know each other better, then it was something I really liked. We are three years into it now and we have a house together. We moved in together about six or eight months ago now. Uh, So we've lived there since. So Tinder seems to have served up an excellent match. And this week is all about those matches so often made on dating apps. Because if you're listening to this episode the week it came out, then February 14th is just around the corner. Now, Valentine's Day isn't for everyone, And there are a lot of arguments in favour of ignoring this so-called Hallmark Day. But it got us thinking about how technology has helped, or maybe hurt, the classical art of dating. In our study, 80% of heterosexual single people haven't met a single new person in the past 12 months. And given that 2019 is the 10th anniversary of Grindr, the dating app geared towards gay, bi, trans and queer people, We're looking at how this app in particular has made an impact, and not just for dating, around the world. It's also allowed people to have more opportunities, either to expand the horizons by meeting tourists or by practicing English. There's so many varieties to its use, it's really just a tool, Uh, but I think people have found the tool to be really helpful for them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips With Everything. 
Well, our first data on how couples met was from 2009, and it jumped out at us when we started looking at the data in the summer of 2009, as soon as the data came in, that meeting online seemed to be displacing a lot of the traditional ways couples in the United States had met. Michael Rosenfeld is a professor of sociology at Stanford University. He studies the history of the family, marriage, and divorce, and how couples meet in the U.S. So prior to 1995, you don't find couples meeting online, but it starts to rise in 1995 with the advent of the graphical web. The first graphical web browsers were introduced in 1994 and 1995, and so it kind of created a market for internet dating. Up to 2009, about two-thirds of the recently formed same-sex couples had met online, and for heterosexual couples, it was about 22%. And so in 2009, uh, meeting through friends was still the main way heterosexual couples met. But a lot of the traditional ways of meeting, that is meeting through family, meeting in church, meeting in primary school, those had been declining for 60 or 70 years. Now, as Michael said, these figures are from research a decade ago. When he revisited this study in 2017, things had changed dramatically. For heterosexual couples as well in the most recent years, meeting online has past friends and become the most dominant way heterosexual couples meet. So now it's the case that almost 40% of recently formed heterosexual couples in the United States have met online in one way or another. In 2018, Michael published a research paper titled How Tinder and the Dating Apps Are and Are Not Changing Dating and Mating in the U.S. One of the first things he was able to determine through this study is who tends to use dating apps in the U.S. People who are looking for same-sex partner use them a little more often, but the heterosexual men and women who are single use them also. But what we found in this study is that the most common use of the phone dating apps is for flirting. That is, there's a fair amount of usage of the phone dating apps, but there aren't that many face-to-face meetings that actually take place. And so when we asked people how many people they had met in the past 12 months for dating romance or sex, we came up with an average of, you know, three, four, or five for single people, right? So these are people who are presumably in the market for partner. And they're not meeting as many potential partners per 12 months as you might expect them to. Michael collected his data from a national survey. On top of that, he and some of his students carried out in-depth interviews with a handful of people who took the survey in the Bay Area. And one of the things we do is we go over with them, you know, the story of each relationship, how they met each person. We ask them to show us their phone and, and show us their profiles on the different dating apps and whatever texts they send back and forth to potential others and what they think the profile, their own profile says about them and all of that. So those are pretty in-depth interviews. And, and we, we leverage that because a big question about how people use this technology, you can only get from in-depth conversation with people. Those questions help us understand how they see all the subsequent relationships that they've been part of. According to Michael, one of the myths about dating apps is that they've opened up this whole new world where the rate at which people are having sex has increased exponentially. But his research says otherwise. And in fact, in our study, 80% of heterosexual single people haven't met a single new person in the past 12 months. That is, 
most heterosexual single people are not on the prowl all the time. And so the idea that the phone dating apps are undermining relationships in in all kinds of ways and, and leading to a frenzy of short-term relationships, we don't find any basis for that. Michael's research also found an interesting trend in how relationships formed through dating apps progress compared to those which developed in a more traditional way. People who meet online progress to marriage a little more quickly than people who meet offline or in more traditional ways. And that has to do, I think, with two things. One is that people who meet online have usually gathered more information from each other about each other before they actually meet in person at first. And then there's the selectivity question, which is, if you're looking for something very particular, if you think, well, I can settle down if I find a mountain climbing Catholic vegetarian who speaks Hindi, but until then I'm holding out, you're much more likely to find that person online. Chance is that your mother doesn't know that person because that person is a harder person to find. And so what you need in order to find them is a larger set of people to search from. Eddie Butler, who told us earlier about his relationship formed through Tinder, agrees. It's not always easy to meet the people that you might want to meet in a rural area or outside of the big cities. And it opens up a world of possibilities, really, in that you can get to know people from further away. And I think if you're not sitting across from somebody, sometimes it's easier for people who might be shy or people who might be a bit awkward or self-conscious. It can be easier for people to make conversation through a phone rather than sitting across face to face. So it can be easier to get to, to know people better rather than jumping straight in and meeting someone for a drink or going for dinner or something like that, which might be embarrassing or worrying for someone. So we can infer from Michael's research that while online dating is now the most popular way to meet a partner, it doesn't necessarily mean that the actual number of people meeting up from these apps is increasing. One of the things that we've seen in the modern era is that the appeal of singleness has increased. People, especially women, used to feel like they had to have a male partner in order to make it in the world. In developed economies like the United States and the UK, that isn't true anymore. Women can get an education and support themselves, and then they don't have to partner with anybody unless they want to. So there's no stigma against living on your own, and people are choosing to do it more. And there's, a, there's an aspect of sort of personal freedom that I think is valued more than it used to be. And the people who embrace the independence most is actually single women in their 60s and 70s and 80s. These are women who mostly have been married and divorced. And if the numbers mean anything, they, they tell us that those women are not as keen on finding a new life partner. They're not looking to remarry and they're, they're dating very intermittently. And they're enjoying their sort of personal space and freedom. And that's something that modern life provides us with. That's a that's a pretty valuable commodity that people didn't used to have, privacy, independence. So we don't need dating apps, and in some cases we don't need any dating at all. <laughs> well, if you're looking for a partner, the dating apps can be a helpful technology to help you get there, but you don't have to be looking for it, it's up to you. After the break, we'll look at Grinder, where it came from, and why so many are using it as more than just a tool to find a partner. You know, I think it's been a tremendous change for people who live in a country where there are no brick and mortar gay spaces, right? Where there are no gay bars, there are no gay sports teams to join and find friends, you know, who are from your own community. We'll be back 
after this. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Lee Glendening, and in this month's We Need to Talk About podcast, our panel respond to Guardian supporter questions on education. How can countries around the world take the politics out of their education systems? How can we grow and keep our teachers and give them greater ownership of their profession? And with the creative arts being sidelined in the curriculum, how can we better support well-being in schools? That's We Need to Talk About Education. To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. It's Valentine's week, so we're looking at the impact dating apps have had on our ability to find a mate. And we're dedicating this half of the show to a specific app, Grindr, which celebrates its 10th birthday in March this year. So as soon as it started to explode into what it is today, where we have people logging in from virtually every country on Earth, I think that what the leadership team realized was that we needed someone who did think about safety in these places, who did think about LGBTQ health and human rights in all of its sort of various manifestations around the world. And that's what led them to hiring me and sort of initiating my job. I wanted to learn a little bit more about the history of Grindr. So I called Jack Harrison Quintana, the director for equality for the app, who told me more about its origins. There were dating apps before us, there were dating sites, um, but we were really actually the first uh, dating app to take advantage of smartphones geolocation services. So there, you know, what came before us, at least in the gay community, you know, in terms of what I personally used, you had to sort of click around to what, you know, what is my city, what is my state, what area can I fit myself into, and then you would see who's logged on. But it wasn't based on actual locations of individual people sort of, you know, all around you, right? And I think that that was really what propelled us to what we are today, which is, you know, the largest uh, social media platform for gay, bi, trans and queer people anywhere in the world. Yeah, going by the latest figures you have, how many users does Grindr have today? These days, the average day we see over 3.8 million unique users connect to the service from all over the world. There are still more than 70 countries where homosexuality is banned. But Jack explains that this doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't grinder users in those countries. It's a little bit more difficult than blocking just a website, which lots of governments know how to do. And I think the second problem is just that the world globalizing has really changed you know, what this looks like. You can buy a phone in one country and 
download an app and travel to another country. And even if that app isn't on the local iTunes store, it might already be on your phone. So there are governments that try, and we still see people logging in from all over all the time. In 2018, Grindr launched a kinder version of the app after the company felt it needed to do more to prevent users from acting with bias. The problem really was that all the biases that show up in society, including in you know gay spaces, really were showing up in Grindr. So that's everything from racism, transphobia, body shaming, ableism, and even things that are more specific to our community, like how we as gay and bi men shame each other around how masculine or how feminine each other is. So we launched Kinder Grinder as a sort of two-part project. One was a video campaign that really lifted up the voices of people who had been harmed by these messages and allowed them to speak back to the whole user community. And that went along with actually a major change in our terms of service that made these kinds of discriminatory statements, you know, disallowed on the platform and created new mechanisms for people to report those who might be bringing that kind of uh, harmful dialogue onto the app. Aside from the potential for online abuse, one of the biggest issues that people have with all dating apps is the potential safety risks. Essentially, you're meeting someone you don't know and you can't guarantee that you're entering a safe situation. There have been stories of underage grooming, people using these apps to commit hate crimes, and more. Now, obviously with millions of daily users, Grindr can't check that every meeting is safe, but I wanted to know if the company has practices in place to protect their users from potential harm. So we actually take advantage of sort of the reach of the app to sort of pop up in front of people's faces tips in local languages about how to stay safe, connect them to our resource guides, connect them to LGBTQ organizations who may have more specific information about where they're living and whom they can turn to if something bad does happen. And I'm particularly proud of the ways that we've been able to build sexual health into the app. Uh, you know, things like giving people the predetermined options to express to one another the most recent time they've gotten an HIV or STI test. And then we built on top of that an automatic reminder feature that you can opt into so that if you're a person who wants to, for example, get tested every four months, if that's about what's right for you, you can actually let this app that you might be using already regularly remind you and make sure that you're going to go. Have you heard of grinder tourism? I have heard of grinder tourism. I think that I may have even engaged in a certain kind of grinder tourism. Grinder tourism is popular in many countries. I'll let Rachel Katz, a PhD student from Manchester University, explain what it is. Grinder tourism is people using grinder as part of a touristic practice, if you want to use academic language, or part of the tourism experience, um, and that involves using Grindr when they're abroad, because it's geolocation-based, to talk to locals. It can range from just asking what restaurants they recommend to actually meeting them in person. Rachel's research focuses on dating apps. For her PhD, she chose to look at Grindr and how some tourists and locals use it in Israel. Rachel travelled to the city of Tel Aviv and interviewed 19 people, 10 locals and 9 tourists. She also had participants record audio diaries about their experience on Grindr that day. 
She is currently analysing the data. One of the things she found was that there was a huge difference in assumptions of what Grindr was used for and what kind of space it held. So for some people related it to physical real life space and they were very offended at certain behaviours like ignoring a hello message, for example. And they would say, you wouldn't ignore me in real life. You wouldn't stop talking to me in the middle of a conversation at a bar. So why would you stop on Grindr? And for them, they had a lot of feelings of hurt around those behaviors, and they felt objectified. Um, they felt like, well, they're only interested in me for a certain purpose, whatever that purpose might be. And once they find out that I'm not interested in the same thing, they just leave me hanging. She was also surprised to learn the various ways in which the participants used the app. Yes, it's used to meet a potential partner, and we've heard that people use it to, say, find out about local cuisine. But it goes further than that. A lot of my participants found their job through Grindr or uh, met their partner through Grindr, long-term partner, boyfriends. Um, a lot of them used it just to combat loneliness. They weren't really intending to meet people. And uh, I had an example of somebody who was immigra- had immigrated to Israel, and he had used Grindr to talk to locals and practice his Hebrew. And his goal w- was that he would be able to speak to locals and have them not recognize the fact that he was an immigrant because he would be so fluent. So it was part of his assimilation into the country. Rachel says one of the biggest advantages of using Grindr as a tourist is the freedom that comes with it. I argue that in a lot of ways, Grindr allows for deinstitutionalization of a lot of things in terms of connecting and communicating. It allows for people to experience tourism independently in that they can just go and, and if they want to interact with locals, it doesn't need to be structured through an organization like Meet the Locals or something like that. They can do it on their own. And also people are meeting through Grindr and meeting their partners through Grindr and making friends through Grindr. So there isn't as much of a need in their minds for gay bars or community centers for that purpose. People still felt there was a need for other reasons, like because they were historically significant or for networking or, you know, as part of charity work or something like that. Um, But it is interesting that it's creating a new institution and that now it's the institution of Grindr and doing things online when maybe some people would rather do it in person. But um, overall, it allows for individuals to move away from institutions. Did you find that there was a difference between the locals and the tourists in how open people felt that they could be about their sexuality? Yes, absolutely. You know, the sample I looked at was in Tel Aviv, and sometimes people call it the country of Tel Aviv because it's so different from the rest of the country in a lot of ways. It's a little more secular, it's very cosmopolitan, and it's more accepting of homosexuality. Um, you can see that just from the fact that the Tel Aviv Pride Parade has, last year it had 250,000 people attend, um, but the Jerusalem Pride Parade is much smaller. So some locals were born and raised in Tel Aviv, and it was a very fairly accepting environment for them, and it wasn't difficult for them to come out or to Uh, be using Grindr, and they weren't afraid of having their faces on there, for example. There was also the case that some locals came from rural areas, and for them it was a lot more of a difficult journey for them. And in some cases they were even using Grindr, but not out to their families at home, whereas most tourists that I spoke to were, were already out and felt comfortable having their faces on and being known. Would you say that Grindr has had a positive impact on the Israeli community outside of this whole Grindr tourism thing? I definitely think so, because it provides a way for people to connect on many different levels. As I said, people found their jobs, people assimilate into new cities, new environments. I think it's done really well. And it's also allowed people to have more opportunities, either to expand their horizons by meeting tourists or by practicing English. There's so many varieties 
to its use, it's really just a tool. Uh, but I think people have found the tool to be really helpful for them. That's the end of our Valentine's Week special. There will be links to both Michael and Rachel's work and to the Kinder Grinder page on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. As always, you can send any ideas you have for future episodes to chipspodcast at theguardian.com. For anyone celebrating it, I hope you have a nice Valentine's Day. For anyone who isn't, have a happy Thursday. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.